one of the primary discoveries of spiritual practice is that if we wish to discover, to understand what it means to be alive, we need to actually let go of the holding and the grasping to our life that we so much are concerned and caught up with and actually explore what it means to open into it. This equates to turning towards our life, turning towards what is actually true. And there are different ways and dimensions that we can understand this in terms of. And one way we could describe our practice is turning towards our nature. Being alive is expressed as this experience of knowing body, mind, heart and the world in that what we see, what we experience is a, a changing and conditional experience something that keeps flowing from one thing into the next and we can actually come to understand through our practice that we are a part of this rather than being so two words rather than one rather than being apart from this we are a part of this in a way perhaps more deeply and profoundly than we can even conceive <coughs> than we can conceive the wholeness of life is uh, really what we are here to understand and the word wholeness has the same root as healing and of holiness. So what does this mean for us here and in our life? We can sometimes live in what seems to be a very small world, a very contracted or shrunken world we might say, in which what we're really, it seems, concerned with so much of the time is what's in it for me. We define our world by what's in it for me. What can I get from it? How can I manipulate, control or fix it? And a world in which we relate from that position is a world with very little space. A world with very little possibility for real discovery. Letting go of that primary fixation of what's in it for me, we actually can start to open open to what it means to be here at all. And one aspect of that, as I mentioned, is being part of the natural world, being part of this vast universe. And that's one of the features of this universe. It is vast. As uh, I think in one Monty Python movie they commented, you know, it's not just big, it's really big or something to that effect to actually just stop for a moment in our little world of you know, concentrating on the breath or wondering what's going to happen in three days time and all of that and just stop and remember what this universe is that we're in not that we can really conceive it but just to even perhaps imagine standing 
under the starless sky, or perhaps as you might have done one of these nights, just looked up into the vastness of the heavens. And what does that do for the human heart and mind when we actually just stop and turn towards, engage that reality? It's something actually so vast that it's beyond our mind. We can't quite wrap our conceptual thinking around a universe as big as this one. And there's a way in which standing under the sky, just looking up, we can feel a sense of humility. Because we really, when it, you know, our life is a big thing for us, it's true, for each of us, it's really true. And at the same time we're just a speck of dust in a really, really vast system of cosmology. And our whole existence isn't, doesn't even count as a flicker of a heartbeat within the life of this universe. It's so tiny, it's so insignificant. This little planet out here in the far reaches of a relatively small galaxy amongst hundreds and billions of galaxies in this universe. And we're here for just a few years. And yet it seems really important. But at some level also we might sense that in the greater scheme of things it's not so important in the way that we need to cling to it so tightly. And that at the same time as we can be humbled by a sense of the vastness of the world, even just this planet, you know, it's kind of small when we fly around it in a jet plane. If we were to try and walk and just see what this planet was that we live on, just this little green and blue lump of matter, it would take us lifetimes just to explore this little place. And yet, in standing under the sky and standing on the earth, we might also get a sense at times of being uplifted by the fact that we are a part of this, that we are a participant in this vast universe. And there can be something actually exhilarating, uplifting about that, that together with the humility of meaning, of being in some ways a meaningless sort of piece of, I don't know, you know, whatever, we're also part of something that's remarkable, incredible, inconceivable any way you look at it. And that kind of push and pull of seeing both the, the smallness of our little world and the vastness of our participation in this world, it can start to kind of stretch our perception. It can start to shift how we actually conceive, how we actually see, how we actually relate to life. And there's a, a story I rather like to to tell, which I think says something about this shifting of perception. And the story concerns an old Chinese meditation master who lives high up in the mountains. And he lived a very simple life, practicing meditation most of the time, much as we've been doing here. And once or twice a week he would walk down the path from his little hut high in the mountains to a village, just a small, simple farming village. And there he would beg for food and any other requisites he might need, clothing or fuel. And the villagers were happy to support them, 
support him, they had a lot of respect for this old man, though they didn't really know what he was doing up there. And one day, a, uh, a delegation from the council that ran the local town, the, the, the head town in the province, was just doing a survey of all the outlying villages and districts, just checking to make sure that everything was sort of okay, square and above board. And they came into this little village and just asking around as they walked, talked to people, they heard about this old man. And he sounded a bit strange. They thought, begging, that's not very good activity. We shouldn't be having that going on in our district. You know, beggars, they can be problems. I think we'd better go have a, work, have a word to this guy. So they, were, they asked for the path and they pointed in the direction of this old um, meditation hermit and where he lived. And so they walked up there and came to the little hut, knocked on the door. Dum, dum, dum. No response. So the leader knocked even louder. Still no response. And then he just pushed the door in and walked in. And there, in the middle of the room, was this little old man, grey, wrinkled, and sitting, very upright, cross-legged, with not a single item of clothing on, in the middle of this empty hut. And the leader and the whole delegation, the other three, their eyes just bulged with disbelief. They just said, what's going on here? What are you doing? I demand to know. No response. No. And louder he said, tell me what you're doing. I want to know. What are you doing sitting in your hut with no pants on? <laughs> The old master opened his eyes and looked up at him. With a gentle smile on his face, he said, Oh, so that's what you think is happening. Well, from where I sit, let me tell you, that this whole world is my heart. And this heart is my pants. And I want to know what you're doing in my pants. Slightly looser fit than perhaps some of us prefer. <laughs> but really, it's just a case of our perspective, isn't it? <laughs> and when we actually practice as we do here, meditation, when we actually engage in stepping away from our conceptions towards our actual experience, what we actually start to feel sometimes is that, that the simple things of life around us actually start to touch us. We can actually feel really moved by a drop of dew with the morning light shining through it. Or a simple pebble or an insect slowly making its way across the path. Or just a play of light through the leaves in the trees. Or a cloud in the sky. Something in us just kind of opens, something in us resonates in a way that without really quite knowing what this means or what this is, we somehow sense our participation, our, our being part of, not apart from the thing we are observing, or so it seems that we are observing. We almost even lose that sense of observing it dissolves into simply just the experiencing of this. And we're not standing apart from it, looking at it. Nor do we become it, but somehow 
the separation between the two dissolved. And we actually begin to perhaps heal the tragic rift that opens up between ourselves in our thinking, conceiving mode and the natural world. And the way we often conceive of the human world is apart from the natural world. It's quite an incredible thing, the human world. If you've ever been in a country where sort of there were termites or lots of ants, and I don't know if you've ever seen a termite mound. It's an incredible thing. Come along and we see this and we think, wow, look at that. Those creatures built this thing. It's like they can be amazing. You know, really tall, quite intricate. We're looking at a the inside of a wasp nest. You've ever seen those documentaries on television? Wow, that's incredible. Look at the intricacy. Look at the detail. Look at the planning. You know? It's more efficient than the London Underground. Which isn't that hard, but <laughs> still quite impressive. And yet when we look at the London Underground or we look at a tall building, we don't think, wow, creatures of nature made that. But they did. Of course we do understand that sometimes our intellect and the predominance of the intellect in human behaviour has led to a degree of alienation and disconnection from the natural world which is tragic and harmful. And yet ultimately it does not remove us from nature. Nothing could do. And as we perhaps start to reflect on this, start to notice perhaps that there's something in us that relates to that, that understands that. We can actually use the natural world, we can actually see it or find it as an incredible resource for our life. So much of what happens when we struggle with the difficulties and the challenges that undoubtedly do arise for us, the grieving, the pain, the disappointment, When we actually sense that we're part of something larger, it's like this space for that. When we're on our own, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by the intensity of our experience. Because we're not understanding it correctly, that we feel it's just me, it's happening to me, and I'm the only one affected by or concerned with it. And we notice how quickly and easily we feel more able to, to hold or to be with a difficult condition simply by sharing it with one person or a few people how suddenly then it becomes more manageable it's just the same as it was before we told someone about it but having shared it something in that sense of being locked in with it just me and the problem or the difficulty or the pain seems to just soften or dissolve open out and just as Sharing it with one person halves it. To actually share it with all of life dissolves it. That said that a spoon of salt put into a glass of water will make that glass of water really horrible to drink. And it's true, if you've ever tried it. But a spoonful of salt dropped into a lake, a vast lake, stir it in, not noticeable at all. Turning towards the natural world, actually opening to 
the natural world is something that happens almost by itself. When we allow ourselves to be more simple, to be more connected, to be more awake and in touch, to become sensitized, it's almost as if the, the senses are washed clean of the overload and the contraction born of busyness and craving. In that wash and clean, we actually almost feel a communication goes on. I was teaching a retreat in France a couple of years ago. We were actually spending most of the time outside. So we were doing a retreat just like this, but camping. And the meditation hall was just a roof with no walls on the top of a hill in the foothills of the Pyrenees. And there was one woman on the retreat who had recently and tragically lost a dear friend to an accident. A fall had taken his life. Young, lovely, and just like that, dead. And she's been so deeply hurt, so deeply shattered by the loss of her dear friend in this tragic way. And she was, had been grieving for some time and was just so much struggling to be able to find a way to be with this experience. And she said, after several days of practicing there on the hill, she said at some point it just occurred to her, kind of out of the blue, to wonder what the tree felt about the fact that Kai had died, her friend Kai. She said, I just kind of, immediately as that question came to mind, she said, I realized that the trees would be sad too. And in that, just some sense of the, the burden of that grief, dropped away, she reported. And it's not that she felt any less the depth of the grief, but it's like somehow then she had the capacity or the breadth in order to actually meet that, to be there for it. To actually allow the world to hold our pain. That we do not need to carry the difficulty and the struggle of life. It's a little bit like the idea of someone who goes on a long journey. This is a story a teacher in India speaks of a, a man going on a long journey with a heavy suitcase, carrying it on their head, as, as they do in India, getting on the train and keeping the suitcase on their head for the whole of the journey to make sure it would arrive safely. And we would look at that person and realise that you really don't need to do that. If you actually put it down, the train will take it along. You don't actually have to carry it in that way. That doesn't mean you abandon it. That's not a good idea in India either. You keep an eye on it. Stay close to it. You don't need to hold the weight. Because actually, something else can hold the weight if you allow that to happen. If you allow yourself to trust in life. To trust that you are part of life. Because we are. We participate in the nature of things. That's what's happening here. The nature of things is happening. We, we can't get out of that. No matter how much we run, how much we hold, how much we fight, how much we wish to try and get back to it, none of that takes us away. How could it? How could we be taken out of what we are, become apart from what we are part of? How could that happen? No more than a fish could swim out of the ocean or swim out of the water. Can we leave 
our own truth. And yet, just as the story is told of the fish who swam around in the ocean, saying, where is the ocean? And another fish says, it's right here. fish says, but this is just water. I'm looking to the ocean. Maybe we're already here. And yet, the suffering we experience is not because of the way things are. not because things aren't always what we want. It's not because it's sometimes difficult or painful or disappointing. Or because the moments of beauty and sweetness and connection aren't as predominant as we might wish for. It's not because of that. It's, it's like we haven't realised our true nature. We haven't realised what is most true. And in that not realising it, we're looking for something else. In that not realising what is most true, we, we're constantly seeking somewhere else. And our life is this whole condition of being off balance. Off balance, because we're, we're looking, we're leaning forward into our life, into the future. Constantly leaning forward, drawing so much that the future holds for us a sense of hope, of possibility, of fulfilling that which seems to be missing now. Something lost, something gone. That when we get to that time or that place, when we become someone else, when we get our meditation practice together or become enlightened, what a nice idea, then it's going to be different. But it's not. It's going to be just the same. Chogyam Trangpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan master, once said, Enlightenment is a great disappointment for the self. And the Buddha once said, I got absolutely nothing from complete, perfect, unexcelled enlightenment. That is why it is complete, perfect, unexcelled enlightenment. Anything you get, you can learn. That's the nature of things that we get. And in the process of looking, we become bound. Bound to a progression in time that has no real meaning, that has no ultimate truth. Perhaps what we're looking for is not apart from where we are. Several years ago I was um, washing the dishes after the evening meal at home. I quite enjoy washing dishes, I was quite enthusiastically doing doing that job and I sort of bowl of warm water to put one's hands in on a cold winter's night and the phone went so I went over and picked up the phone started talking to turned out to be a friend chatting away as we were chatting I sometimes distractedly do start to just put my hand and feel my wedding ring on my finger and just kind of play with that on this occasion I, I put my hand and started to feel where the wedding ring should have been and realised it was missing and, and I just as I was talking to my friend, I started to think, oh no, my wedding ring's fallen off. I could feel that little spot where it used to be, where it's kind of shiny and sort of a bit smooth and sort of soft. I thought, oh, I know. I actually just covered the mouthpiece while my friend was talking and called out to my wife. I said, Catherine, uh, don't tip the dishwater out. 
just in case it was in there. And I finished the conversation. And quite concerned now, I was obviously quite attached to this ring. Um, you know, hung up the phone, went back, looked through the dishwater, looked through the sink, couldn't find it anywhere. And I was, you know, Catherine and I were looking around for it. I think, where could this have gone? I was just feeling the sense of this missing ring and really starting to almost grieve for it. I was like, oh gosh, that was a really important thing for me. I hope I haven't lost it. And then Catherine looked at me at some point and she said, hey, you're looking at the wrong hand. <laughs> and it was true. I've been looking here, it's not on this finger, it's gone. I was looking for it so hard, feeling it. I didn't notice it was on this hand all along. And somehow, this is a true story, somehow I had really believed I'd lost it. I'd been so certain it was missing. And it wasn't. So what if we stopped looking away? What if we stopped looking somewhere else? What would we see? It wouldn't be a surprise. It wouldn't be a surprise to any of us what we would see. And yet, if we really saw it, it might be a surprise. If we really saw what it meant. But what we see, if we're here, right now, and if we're looking at what's going on, is experience happening, isn't it? Sight, sound, thoughts, emotions, taste, smell, body sensation or touch. That's what's happening, isn't it? That's what's been happening all along, this whole retreat and before. Thoughts, feelings, sound, sight, sound, sight, touch, taste, smell. What's going to be happening from here on in? Two minutes from now, two days from now, two years from now, two lifetimes from now, what's going to be happening? It's going to be that. And all of this being known. All of this being received. Consciousness encountering experience. And in this process, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because if we're looking amongst all these sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts and feelings for something we can take hold of that's going to eternally satisfy us and make us happy, or something that we can take hold of that will actually define for us who I am, that will give us a sense of a solid place of reference in the midst of a world in flux, just as we haven't found that yet, we're not going to in the future. The future offers no more hope of success in that endeavour than the past has produced. It's so attractive, it's so compelling, it's fascinating, isn't it? Look at what's going on, look at this. We call it my life. And other people's lives, and the world, and all of this. Look at it. And yet see what's happening when we look. It's like we're drawn into this process. We become lost in it. And as much as it's attracting, attractive, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And how many of you spend the first two or three days of the retreat just recovering from your life? Don't we know that so well? Because if we're constantly chasing after it, it's like chasing our own tail. We go round and round and round and round and we just get dizzy and exhausted. 
what is actually happening if we just release that compulsive pressure that pursuing to chase after the seek, to look in things, to look away from where we are. Because as soon as we invest in something else and somewhere else and becoming someone else, we immediately lean towards that and away from where we are. We look towards that and away from where we are, from what is actually here right now. If we actually look and see more deeply, there are two dimensions to what is revealed in this moment. Two dimensions to every moment of experience, every moment of being alive. And those aspects or dimensions of our experience can be understood, perhaps most usefully through metaphor. To see how we tend to focus on the things that stand out to us. Just as if we look up at the night sky, as I was mentioning earlier. What we tend to see is all these little points of light, don't we? We see all these stars, and maybe some of them are galaxies, and recently Mars has been hanging around looking kind of, you know, amazing. But that's what we tend to notice. We notice all those little spots of light. We notice the things that are there. And we actually construct images out of them. We make this into the Big Dipper, and that into Orion, or whatever other constellation. The North Star, or the Southern Cross, if you come from New Zealand, like I do. And we make these things out of them. But do we notice what the backdrop is? That vast, empty blackness of space that reveals them, without which we wouldn't see any of those points of light in the sky. Or if we imagine a cloud moving through the day sky. We look and we see the cloud, we see it's got shape, and we think, oh, it looks like an elephant. Well, no, it's a hippopotamus. Now it's a, you know, and it's fascinating. Things that move fascinate us. Things that move are fascinating. But they're also entrancing. Because when we're looking at the thing that moves, we just somehow found to notice what's still. That which is unmoving, which reveals the movement itself. The blue sky in which the cloud moves is unaffected by the cloud. It's not, as one teacher said, it's not sort of particularly gratified by rainbows or disappointed by storm clouds. The sky is just there, and through them, the weather moves, constantly changing. Our life is in some ways not so different than that. Another metaphor would be to just reflect on what happens when we go to the movies. Probably all of you have done this, perhaps relatively recently, or watched television, it's much the same. What happens? What really happens when we go to the movies? We know, know, we all know, there's a big white screen. And onto it, they project a whole lot of colours. Then they make some noises. And between the colours and the noises, we start to get really interested in the colours. We think, these are nice colours, I like these colours. Those colours are the bad colours. They're causing trouble here. And we see how these good colours and these bad colours interact with each other. We watch the story unfold. All these things happen. 
sometimes we get worried for the good colours because the bad colours are really bad and they're going to hurt them. We want to call out, look out! You know, you're in danger. Well, sometimes, often towards the end, after the bad colours have gone away, the good colours make extra special friends with some other good colours and you think, oh, that's really nice. And that's what's happening, really, isn't it? And what we add to it is a whole level of solidity, of significance, and then the movie ends. And it dissolves, it's gone. And yet that whole time, could you have seen a single colour without the screen that was behind it? And yet could you see the screen while the movie was playing? No. By definition, the movie, and looking at the movie, means you can't see the screen. But the movie is showing you above all else more significantly and profoundly than the story of the movie, what the movie is revealing is that the screen is there. The screen is reflecting the story, the images. So what is that dimension of our experience that is not moving, that does not change, in which all of our life is revealed, Stillness is simply the potential for movement. Movement is just stillness taking form. Just as silence is simply the potential for sound, and sound is simply silence in form, expressed, manifest, silent. And the simple fact of awareness that we know that consciousness is at all that life can be known at all. This simple and yet profound reality has something to reveal to us. Many years ago I was practicing in a monastery in Asia, in India in fact, and having been there the year before, I was very happy to return and engaging in my practice, as we've all been doing over these days. And one of the features I most enjoyed about this monastery were these uh, the puppies. One of the, in, the, in the monasteries in Asia, there's something of a sanctuary for not just people, but for all living creatures. And uh, life can be pretty harsh in uh, poorer countries, poorer places. This is in Bihar, and the poorest, uh, in fact, regarded as one of the poorest areas in the whole world. And so um, regularly the, uh, the monks and the nuns would take on a few sort of dogs and let them, let them live at the monastery and being creatures as they are, there would be puppies as well. And on uh, this occasion I was really enjoying the puppy. It was really lovely. They would kind of, as you're doing walking meditation, they come running along and bounce off your feet to see if you're keeping your balance. You kind of put your food down for a moment, they come up and help you with it in case you've taken too much. Or, um, you know, all sorts of delightful little antics. And just so full of joy, it seems, these puppies. And then it struck me about seven or eight days into this retreat, just completely struck me that I thought they were the same puppies as last year. 
I've been looking at these puppies thinking, oh, how lovely. And really, I really believe they were the same puppies as last year. But obviously, they weren't. It's kind of stupid, really, when you're quite foolish to think that. Yet, unquestioningly, I'd assumed it. And something just kind of struck me in that moment. Of course, these are not the same puppies. They've grown up. Some of them have survived. Some of them haven't. Maybe Maybe one of them is the parent of these puppies. But something about the fact of what the puppies were expressing through their joy and their struggles at times and fighting over food or getting sort of scared by one of the monastery cats and chasing the roosters, all of that. It was like, although puppies come and go, puppy nature is unchanging. But there's something in them, you could call it life, expressed through the medium of a puppy that doesn't change. It's just the same. It's just the same. It doesn't actually change. Just as a river flowing to the sea. It doesn't have a drop of water in it in the same place more than once, ever. The same drop. It's like that old saying, you can't ever step into the same river twice. It's always different. It's always changing. And yet there's something in the nature of the river that flows to the sea. And that's actually the nature of it. That's what makes it a river, is that flow to the sea. And our life moves. We see movement. We see flow. We see this ongoing process of life flowing, moving. And when we seek to try and take hold of it, we get battered, we get thrown around, as if we were trying to stand still in the current of a swiftly moving river. We can't do it. We can't do it. And in that, in that being, in the flow of life, and you're noticing what, it, what is this capacity that knows the flow, that moves with the flow and yet is not moved by the flow. What is this? If we are open to all experience, if we don't take hold of it, if we're not looking for one thing over another, but really deeply release ourselves into that process. Release any sense of demand upon or from that process. What actually happens is that we're not bound by any experience. We're not bound by any particular. No one thing defines us. No combination of things defines who and what we are. When we're not placing ourselves at the centre, not trying to locate ourselves in the flow, we actually become opened by that very process to the dimension of life in which freedom is revealed, to the touch of wisdom Awareness reveals experience. And in that, there's this sense of an inexpressible and yet tangible presence of life that simply is. And is revealed constantly in every moment, no matter what is happening within that moment. This living awareness, this aliveness, 
What is it saying to us? What is it speaking of? What answer can we found, can we find to the question of who am I in all this? When we can't locate ourselves somewhere, what is left? Asking what is all of this is the same question as who am I? We don't need to answer the question, but see where does the question leave us? When we turn towards it. The flow of life reveals its stillness. The movement of life reveals that which is unmoving. And in the stillness of simply being, a stillness that encompasses without being ruffled by all the movement that does not stand apart from, nor is yet defined by all that moves. What do we discover? Ultimately, it is not we who are moving through life, but life is moving through that which we are, the stillness that is truth. This dimension that is so immediately close to us, so ever-present and all around us, more close than our very thoughts themselves, so close that we haven't actually consciously recognized it. Just as we may not have seen the screen onto which the movie projects. What is it that reveals life itself? What is revealed by life itself? We are not and have never been apart from that. And yet that journey of discovery is not one that our intellectual mind can travel. We have to be willing to step away from the knowing and the certainty and enter into the territory of the unknown the territory of revelation and discovery. One of my favourite poems or pieces of poetry is from the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. He says, We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well. 
and all manner of things shall be well. Turning towards where we are. Turning towards what is true right now. Leaving everything behind. We will not lose a thing. To know what Dharma practice is ultimately concerned with teaching us. We are asked to let go, as we've said and as we've spoken, as we've reflected. And yet ultimately, it's not us that lets go, because we can't do that either. We simply invite the possibility by our willingness, and ultimately, it is life which lets go. And in that, we find that rather than falling out of control, we are held. We are held in the river of life. We float within that. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. May your practice be a deepening discovery of the truth which is unbound and yet not apart from all things.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.